Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Finding a doctor can be especially difficult in many Georgia counties. For LGBTQ patients, it can be even worse. A first-of-its-kind clinic in Savannah is working to ease that difficulty. It is LGBT Pride Month, and the Starland Family Practice is celebrating its one-year anniversary. It is a routine family medical office with a focus on LGBT patients. Brandon Earhart is the clinic's owner and physician assistant, and he's joining us from our Savannah Bureau. Brandon, welcome. Thank you. When Dr. Raymond Martins is also with us in the studio, or there in Savannah, rather, he's the clinic's physician. Hello, Raymond. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for being here. I'm curious, Raymond, how, Randall Brandon, because it was you who was the founder, why did you feel it was important to open a family practice that caters to members of the LGBT community? You know, I, I've lived in Georgia for uh, eight years now, and moving down here from the northeast, I quickly realized that it was an area underserved um, in the south. And so it took about two and a half years of planning to get that practice up and running. So what did you use for models? Did you look at other places that had been catering to this particular population? No, not exactly. Um, I had some primary care experience up in New Jersey, and so I pretty much knew that I wanted to open a a typical family practice office, but just be able to cater to the LGBT community. Why Savannah? Oh, I just fell in love with Savannah when I came down to visit. Who can blame you? (laughs) So what, what does the practice offer that more traditional family practices don't? You know, so we prescribe um, Truvada for PrEP, which is a preventative medication to prevent HIV. Um, I do a lot of hormone replacement therapy for our transgender patients. Um, And then we also treat HIV. So the idea is treating HIV within a primary care setting to reduce that patient burden where they don't have to go to a specialist and they can kind of do everything within the home office. Yeah, I want to talk more about Truvada because that is one of the treatments for HIV that is, in effect, very, very expensive to treat people with. Um, So I'm wondering about, you know, financial help. Have you found any alternatives for that? The um, drug company that produces Truvada, Gilead, has a pretty extensive program uh, to help patients who have insurance cover their co-pays, and they pay up to, I believe it's $4,800 a year in, in your copay coverage. So most patients with insurance will get it for free. Uh, and for those patients who are uninsured or underinsured, they uh, have a program based on income that allows a majority of the patients to get it for free. Uh, I believe their income cutoff is around seventy-five dollars to $80,000 a year. Mm. Okay, so I want to talk more about costs in a minute, but I'd love to hear from Dr. Raymond. Uh, Dr. Raymond, Starlin's been open for a year now. How have you noticed the practice changing? So um, I've been living in Washington, D.C. at the time, so um, I've seen a little bit from afar. But, um, yeah, the whole whole reason I came down here was um, my husband and I actually had a child through surrogacy, and our, our surrogate lives here in Savannah, and so we fell in love with um, the family, but then also Savannah as a whole. 
And so the whole idea of moving here to help the, you know, the community as a whole, including the LGBT community, um, uh, was really appealing. And so, I mean, right now it's it's um, a smaller practice, basically part-time, but with me joining it now, it'll be a full-time practice. So you moved from Washington, D.C. I'm wondering if in your training as a doctor, uh, whether or not there was a focus at all on LGBT issues. Is that part of the curriculum now? Sure, actually. So um, in Washington, D.C., I was the uh, chief medical officer and then in charge of education at Whitman Walker Health. Um, at that location, we serve uh, more than 10,000 patients who identify as LGBT. Um, and so I was working at, on a larger scale there, mainly like policy education work and, and direct clinical care. And here I hope to bring that expertise, um, especially the direct clinical care, to, uh, to Starland Family Practice. Brandon, how about for you? What are some of the big takeaways you've learned in this year the clinic has been operating? Uh, you know, there's a, a very large uh, population of LGBT patients down here in Southeast Georgia. Uh, and most of the patients that I were seeing, especially transgender patients, were traveling to Charlotte, North Carolina for care, Atlanta. Um, and I've kind of reduced that travel time for them. So I still am getting patients from Valdosta, Dublin, who are coming out this way just because it's a little bit easier for them. Um, and it was actually a lot more it's a lot larger of a community than I truly expected doing my own research beforehand. Actually, do we know about the numbers, like comparatively the population there in, in southern Georgia compared to places like Atlanta? Well, it's certainly less than, than Atlanta, um, but Chatham County is, I believe, in the top 10% of counties in Georgia with same-sex couples. So mm -hmm. a big hub around Atlanta and those counties, um, and then Chatham County here... Uh, I get patients from South Carolina, so just right across the border. Um, and then I believe another bigger pockets down South Georgia around Brunswick, St. Simons. Well, Raymond mentioned, or Dr. Martins mentioned, that it's a small practice. For you, what are the benefits of starting off small, which was originally just three days out of a week, now operating full-time full, full -time five days? Yeah, so when I started the practice, uh, it's pretty much just myself. So when a patient walks in the office, um, I'm the one who greets them in the lobby, bring them back, I register the patient, verify their insurance. Uh, and so most of my patient visits are scheduled for an hour, and I, I typically spend that entire hour with patients. Um, Follow-ups, of course, are a little bit quicker, but they're all scheduled for 30 minutes. Um, and I think not having a, you know, ancillary staff to help encourages patients to be a little more open, spend time with me um, where I can actually get to know them, their history, their family history, um, and take care of them a little bit better because I'm not so rushed. Well, that is certainly not something we've come to expect in contemporary medicine. That's Brandon Earhart. He's the owner and physician assistant at the Starlin Family Practice. He's also with, also with us is Dr. Raymond Martins, who is a, the clinic's physician. They cater especially to LGBT clients, but we should note not exclusively, correct? Correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah, th that's correct. I, I think what's really important is that we're an affirming space for anyone, regardless of their sexual gender identity. And I think it's nice when you have um, like a mixture of patients within a practice, because 
I think people feel more comfortable as a whole. Right. Well, but people have given your clinic five-star ratings online, so so far very good feedback. But I also noticed that you invite prospective patients to text you. Are, are people reluctant to reach out in person? Uh, you know, I think that that's just kind of the trend of the future um, where patients are a little more likely to send a text. Uh, I do get a lot of phone calls. It's actually just easier for me because if I'm with a patient, since I don't have a staff, um, I can't answer that phone if a patient calls. So if they send me a text, I'm able to respond to that a little bit easier as soon as I'm done with my patient. Well, Dr. Raymond, for you, or Dr. Martins, rather, how, how do you connect with patients? I mean, I, I think of, I think my, I'll give you an example. So I, I love direct patient care as a whole. I love the idea of taking care of someone throughout their journey in life. And I think there's no better example than a patient who has, um, who want, who is transgender, who want, you know, who wants to become who they are and being able to watch them, giving them hormone therapy, supporting them through um, surgery or just supporting them as they are. Like you get to watch uh, like an amazing transformation with the patient. And at the same time, you see like a lot of other health issues, work issues resolve when the, the patient's, you know, affirmed with who they are. Mm. Well, sexual reassignment surgery uh, is an elective surgery, correct? Uh, that's considered elective as far as insurance is concerned. It, it depends on the um, insurance status. Actually, through uh, Medicaid, it is um, actually not. So depending on the type of surgery, some of the surgeries actually are covered by Medicaid, but um, um, uh, some of the other ones are considered cosmetic, like a lot of the facial surgeries. So, you know, Gallup poll, 70% of Americans believe the U.S. healthcare system is in a state of crisis, and the Trump administration does support repealing the Affordable Care Act. Does your clinic have insurance certification for all patients and all companies? Uh, so currently we accept Blue Cross Blue Shield and Humana, um, and we are in the process of applying for most commercial insurances, um, Medicare, um, Medicaid is uh, uh, debatable right now um, because there's just so many changes with the um, ACA and how that you know Medicaid is covered and treated. Um, but I believe, especially so in, in Savannah, Chatham County, and the five counties around us, your only um, option is to get Ambetter because Blue Cross pulled out last year. Um, but I believe there's a new insurance that's coming into the marketplace for 2020. Um, and so we've we started to look into that plan, too. Yeah, so this is something that is a big issue, especially as you, if you're talking about treating people in the trans community that don't get care in other places or have to travel for it. What are some of the other specific needs in the LGBT community you see? You mentioned HIV treatment, but for people who are trans or transitioning. So um, there are a, a number of um, health disparities or actually uh, needs related to the LGBT community. Um, going back to the financial status, um, I think one of the benefits of, of starting with a small number of patients, we can literally cater our practice to the patients that come to see us. Um, and so that includes like hour of operations, communications, everything like that. Um, as far as uh, insurance coverage, um, it would make sense for us to 
to see like a limited uh, number of insur- insurances at first and then broaden based on our business model because we're, we're just starting out. But I think one way to actually improve the community health overall is, you know, I don't think we want to be the only place for LGBT health in Savannah. I would, I love the idea of going out and educating other medical facilities to be able to um, practice the same, like a culturally competent care. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as health issues within the community, um, the so a lot of them are based on the services we offer. So you know, HIV is a high. Uh, um, put uh, especially gay men and transgender patients at high risk for HIV. And so um, there is the HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. That's the idea of taking Truvada every day to prevent HIV. Mm -hmm. Um, That's very effective. Um, At the same time, um, another way to prevent HIV is anyone who's HIV positive identifying them and then putting them on medications. Essentially, that brings the amount of virus in their blood so low that they're considered uninfectious. So between those two modalities, you can drastically reduce HIV. Um, And as far as a lot of the other health disparities, it really has to do with LGBT patients not feeling comfortable accessing care or talking frankly with their provider. And so because of that, they don't get the typical cancer screenings. And so breast cancer uh, and cervical cancer are higher in the lesbian communities. Um, And so I think more than anything, the idea is have accessible care that's culturally competent and affirming to who the person is. Well, I want to congratulate you on a year and great to speak with you both. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Dr. Raymond Martins and Brandon Earhart, they both operate and work with patients at the Starland Family Practice in Savannah. It is a clinic that focuses on LGBT patients. Now, stay with us. Author and journalist Jared Yates Sexton gets deeply personal in a new memoir that addresses toxic masculinity. We'll hear what led him to pen the man they wanted me to be. When On Second Thought continues, stay with us. I'm Virginia Prescott. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. When Jared Yates Sexton's grandma researched their family tree, she discovered a long line of scofflaws, debtors, drunkards, and out-and-out criminals. The working-class men he grew up with in Linton, Indiana, could never quite get ahead, especially as industrial jobs dried up. But in their homes, their power was absolute, often maintained by violence, intimidation, and a rigid masculinity that was toxic to their families, communities, and to themselves. These are the men that Sexton writes about in The Man They Wanted Me to Be. It's his memoir of struggling to fit that tradition, ver- that traditional version of maleness, as well as an examination of research on how these traits measurably harm the mental and emotional health of those men and the public. Jared Yates Sexton is Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Georgia Southern University and joins me in the studio. Jared, welcome. Thank you. So you use the term white patriarchal masculinity in the book. What does that term mean to you? So the white patriarchy is a a large umbrella term that that covers a lot of of ground. Basically, it's the idea that society is sort of organized um, for the preference of of white men. Um, That can be through laws, that can be through customs or traditions. But basically, it means that men socially, politically, economically are often on top of a pyramid of women and uh, 
minority populations. And you saw that when you were growing up in rural, working-class Indiana town. Men helped you form that picture, like your father. What were they What were they showing you about what it meant to be a man? Well, so the men I grew up with, um, in a lot of ways, they, they, you know, looking back, they were very sad individuals. They weren't able to live their dreams. They weren't able to reach a certain level that they were always striving after. But what they had was their labor, right? They got to basically put themselves into their jobs. They exhausted themselves. They broke their bodies. But at the end of the day, the the bargain that they made was they were happy with their labor, and when they came home, they were in charge. And everybody in the home basically uh, took care of their whims, and there were punishments if that didn't happen. And and that's how the the white patriarchy in that particular instance was enforced. Um, the, the women were made to take care of the house and take care of the family, and the boys in the family were taught this system of behavior by emotional, physical, verbal abuse. And that is certainly something that you encountered in your life. Your father was, um, you know, a sad man in his own way, but he and your mom split up fairly early, and you had a series of stepfathers who were just rigid. Uh, But you you see also in this, in looking at generations and generations of men with this reinforced masculinity, there's a real vulnerability in that for them, too. What did you find? Absolutely there is. Um, th- there's a real sadness to it. Um, the, the thing you think about men is that they are, they're hard and they're invincible and they're strong. And, and that's what they project. But deep down, and this is the thing that I had to come to terms with, is I always felt uncomfortable with that rigid masculinity. I always thought that I was alone in that. But when I talk to other men, particularly the ones who overcompensate and pretend to be macho or strong or invincible... It turns out when you, they're honest, they feel the same way. They, they, they are, it's impossible to live up to those expectations because the, it, that masculine ideal doesn't actually exist. Mm. Men are vulnerable. Men are real. They have emotions. And the fact that they are taught to suppress them, it hurts them. And, and that leads to a whole range of terrible behaviors that hurts themselves and everyone around them. Yeah, I'd love to talk about some of the data on that. But I want to get to that point that you said, you know, that they can't get there. It is unattainable on some level, which opens them up to sh- shame because they're not measuring up. And there's this kind of cycle of shame and trying to overcompensate for the shame. How does that play out? Give us some examples. Of oh, that. It's, a, it's a terribly tragic thing. So men are basically taught from the time they are very, very small that the only acceptable means of emotional expression is either anger or violence. Right. So they are basically completely walled off from their emotions. They're taught that they're not supposed to cry. They're not supposed to express themselves. They're not supposed to communicate. And so what happens when they feel shame? And this can be economic shame. This can be at work. This can be in the family. This can be socially. Whenever they feel shame, those men who are walled off, they react violently. This is how abuse happens. This is how uh, verbal and physical abuse happens. This is how they end up hurting themselves through um, self-medication, through using drugs, through using substances, through putting themselves in really dangerous situations. They are trying to overcompensate for what is a natural, uh, uh, you know, emotion. Right. And for you, uh, there is a as you say, there is a, a this this way of life is long past its expiration date. That's how you put it. The male centric occupations dried up. Men no longer had that option, that connection to their esteem and their sense of value with their work. But is it over? Is that expiration date over? I mean, if we look at the sort of contemporary politics and recent legislations about women and, and women reproductive 
rights, do you think it's over? Well, this crisis that we're currently in is actually this weird political uh, reckoning with what's happening. So we have industry that's gone away, right? We have a lot of these traditionally, quote unquote, masculine jobs that are no longer there. So for instance, my family are laborers. They're factory workers. They're miners. You know, they're, they're people who have always been taught to do industry. Those jobs are gone. And quite frankly, they never enjoyed them in the first place. They, they broke their bodies, right? But what happens is they are now being bolstered by political movements. And we're definitely seeing this with uh, the rise of Donald Trump, who tells him he's going to bring back their factories. They're going to bring back the coal mines. These are jobs that are not coming back, but it gives them political identity. And so what they're doing is they're actually calling back angrily for these old ideas from where masculinity came from that aren't there anymore and won't exist. So they're actually holding back progress that would help themselves and everyone else. And these are the men that you could fit in with. With at Trump rallies uh, during the 1916 campaign. Um, you were covering them. You were wrote, writing about them, and your articles were getting picked up online. Eventually, a lot of people following you as somebody who could pass, I guess. That's right. I had to learn how to basically walk among people because I had always learned as a child and, and as a young man how to be like them. So actually, weirdly enough, what, what crystallized for me as I was going to these Donald Trump rallies, and I spent a lot of time in these circles, is it was a lot of the men that I recognized from my childhood, and they had found a political umbrella to be under. And that identity, um, weirdly enough, is what has propelled uh, a lot of this movement. Right. Uh, but how is your read of this, you know, different from the forgotten men, those left behind, uh, the narrative we've heard, especially frequently since the 20. 20- 16 election, that men are under attack. They have nothing of meaning for them anymore. How is your narrative of that different? Well, I think, again, that's a political story. I think they get told that this is something that they have to hold on to when, in fact, they don't want it anyway, right? Like, when you go to work at a factory, you go to work at a mine, what you're doing is you're ransoming the future of your life. You're giving away your body. You're going to live a shorter life. And men, studies show time and time again, are actually miserable. They're now, like, their their expectations of lifespan are going down because they're miserable living out these identities. But they're told constantly that they can do it. And they have all these insecurities that are born out from the time they're young. So they fight the idea of progress. So they actually push against any sort of change. And, and the truth is, they have everything to gain from this. They have happiness. They have better relationships. They have longer lives. They have, uh, you know, better careers that they can get from this. But there's something uh, born into them, something taught to them when they're young that, that makes them push against that. But how about for you? This is something that you had to buck up against, this incredible pressure to fit in, even though, uh, as your stepmother called you, soft when you were young. You were a sensitive kid. You wanted to talk about Napoleon and, and the kids at school would have none of it. So how do you get out? How do you, you went away to university first in your family to do that? How do people get out of that kind of entrapment? It's a really large problem, but the first step of all of it is communication. Uh, what I found, and going back to my father, I, I found that talking to my father, who was the type of person who would have supported this movement, I started talking to him about um, his experiences and what he had gone through. And what he ended up telling me, this person who had terrorized me and abused me because he thought I was soft, it turned out when he was a kid, 
he was soft too. Mm -hmm. And he had been abused by his own father and basically had been beaten into him that he had to be strong and he had to be like a real man. So he was always overcompensating. He was always playing a role. So the first step is looking at this, and this goes back to these um, traditions and customs. We have to look at them and realize that they're artificial. And the moment that we start actually considering what masculinity is instead of just accepting it blindly, we start to realize it's full of contradictions. And men know deep down that this isn't real. They know that they're playing a character. And so the moment that they can have some communication or uh, an expression, they start to realize what, what a fraud this thing is. I'm speaking with Jared Yates Sexton. He's author of The Man They Wanted Me to Be, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. Yeah, that's one of the things late in his life, as his health was in decline, your father says to me, you, you, you start to spend more time with him. Uh, initially, there's a lot of tension. You know, he's clinging to a lot of his old values. But at one point, he says to you, do you ever feel like you're wearing a disguise? That is just heartbreaking. He'd spent a lot of his life posing on some level, performing masculinity. And yeah, my father My father was the type of person who, like, on a Saturday, he would watch a NASCAR race followed by a showing of Patton, right? <laughs> he drove around town in big pickup trucks, and he, he gathered guns. He would say these fascist, racist things all the time, and I didn't know who he was. But eventually he confided in me that he had not had um, intellectual or emotional intimacy for 30 years. And he, he had felt so alone in it and so afraid in it that he had always just performed these things. He'd always just been around other men being racist and fascist. Eventually, he traded in his truck for a Prius, and he became incredibly open and, and liberal and caring and emotional. But that's the whole point of it is, I think that once men start to realize that this is not just a role they've been playing, but it's actually a prison that they have put themselves in, I think that the, the alternative looks really good. Well, but he disguised his illness, too. And that is another thing in, your, in the research that you quote in the book about how men do not take care of themselves, especially admitting that kind of healthy vulner or health bodily vulnerability would be too much. So my dad died um, at the really young age of 59 from rampant diabetes, which is, a, you know, a disease that you should be able to take care of, that should be able to be handled. But he didn't go to the doctor for three decades. And right here is where we find the contradiction of masculinity. Men are supposed to be strong and brave and unflinching. They're terrified of going to the doctor. Right. Because the doctor can tell them something that makes them vulnerable. And so what they do is they don't go to the doctor and they have all of these chronic conditions, heart conditions, diabetes, uh, you know, uh, obesity, all these things that they can go get taken care of. But they're so afraid to walk in that door. They're afraid to get medical help. They're afraid to get mental health. And so what they do is they, they condemn themselves to lead shorter, more miserable lives, which is a, a terrible contradiction when you really look at it about the, the man who's supposed to be unflinched but he can't go to a doctor's office. Well, we mentioned before that you go through the kind of history of how these rules became adopted by men. And part of it is advertising. The mass media marketing age really helped reinforce like what women's roles are and what men's roles are. But now we are seeing much more in advertising the caring dad, you know, the one who's changing the diapers or taking care of the kids. Do you think that there is a gap between how that you know, that traditional idea is being projected on television, in mass media, and how people really feel it in their lives. I, I, I think the two are definitely linked. Um, going back to the mass media age, um, you, you have things like Freudian attempts, right, to make men and women feel like they're not uh, – 
they're they're not adhering to their roles. So they have to buy products, right? A man has to buy a truck. He has to buy a lawnmower. I just saw the other day the weirdest thing. They now have male foundation, but they call it war paint. <laughs> and, and and so what happens is that, that men learn that they have to pay a monetary price in order to be a man. But we are seeing uh, a, a difference now. Like you said, we're seeing like the caring father, right? We're seeing uh, the, the man who will take care of his kids or will help out around the kitchen. Those things uh, change things over time. But the problem is that a lot of the men who need to realize that, they see that as an attack, right? They, they turn on the TV and every time they turn the channel, they see an attack on themselves because they are so, so uh, grounded in this old idea and this, this traditional idea of masculinity that anything that says different is an attack on them. Well, I think many of us have people in our lives, you know, men who are bound by this traditional ideal. My own father, he's now deceased, but he couldn't talk about his war experience, you know, like so many men that you mentioned in the book. Very shut down about that. We see that in our communities, in our workplaces. So in situations where we see this, how do you confront it? How do you have that conversation with in a way that doesn't put someone's back up against the wall? Well, and, and so much of that performance is all about not having your back against the wall, right? In my family, the way that it's expressed is, you know, insecure men cleaning their guns at the table, right? Or talking about their exploits. And what happens when they leave the room is the people who are left in the room are like, I feel so bad for him. I, I, this is a really sad situation. I wish that he would he would feel better. And they know it's about insecurity. The problem is we have to take that conversation from something that we say when they leave the room to something that we say when they're in the room. And we have to start talking to people and not just accepting that this is the way it has to be, which is a terrible term that we've been saying for so long that just perpetuates this behavior. We have to tell men who are insecure and overcompensating that it's okay, that they are loved, even if they fall short of the masculine ideal. We still love them. We still value them. And there's value beyond that performance. Well, there's so much that you reveal personally about your road to get here, Jared, that I encourage readers to pick up uh, because it's a it's a dramatic and winding road and very profound. But do you ever find yourself, you know, defaulting to those old positions that you so long strove to inhabit, this maleness? Oh, absolutely. I had a, a really hard time with it. You know, I never felt comfortable with it as a kid, and I went through all this abuse. I, I, I hated the idea of masculinity. I wanted to get away from it. But I found later on in life that when I would have some sort of setback or, or some sort of insecurity, I would find myself performing the idea again. And the problem is that once you're around that, you're around those old patriarchal ideas. It infects you, and it's with you for the rest of your life. So I basically have to take stock every single day and try and understand why I'm doing the things I am and why I behave the way that I do. And you have to be aware of that in order to, to move past it. All right. Uh, we just got 30 seconds, but, you know, Gillette campaign uh, right before the Super Bowl defending, creating this idea of reinforcing the idea of men as sensitive to the Me Too movement. A lot of clapback against that. What did you see? Well, I, I think on one hand it's good because, again, mass media has a way of affecting these things. But we also need to keep an open eye towards what corporations are doing because in so many ways we're seeing these progressive movements that are being monetized. So we have to realize that, yes, it's good that we're moving in that direction and we're having that conversation, but we also need to realize who we are and why. Jared Yates Sexton, thank you so much. Jared teaches creative writing at Southern, Georgia Southern University. He's a contributing writer at Salon. He's written for the New York Times, and he's author of The Man They Wanted Me to Be. Among those things he inherited from his dad, well, a little story about John Prine. We're hearing a little bit of him right now. This is On Second Thought.
a flag draped casket on a local hero's hill. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Some A-list Hollywood production companies are threatening to pull out of Georgia if the LIFE Act comes into effect in January. Opponents of abortion rights hope the law will be a test case that makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court and overturns Roe v. Wade. It wouldn't be the first time a Georgia law could bring a substantial Supreme Court ruling. The same day the Supreme Court decided on Roe v. Wade, it also ruled on a companion case from Georgia called Doe v. Bolton. That changed the state's policy of only allowing abortions under certain circumstances and challenged who could approve an abortion. Atlanta senior judge Dorothy Beasley represented Georgia for the case. We asked her for a look back. From CBS News headquarters in New York, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. My name is Dorothy Toth Beasley, and I am now a senior judge of the state of Georgia, having served on the State Court of Fulton County and the Court of Appeals of Georgia. I was the lead attorney representing Arthur Bolton and the other two defendants in the case. We'll hear arguments next in number 70, 40, Doe against uh, Bolton. In the case of Doe versus Bolton, this is unlike most challenges to the to statutes in that there was another being involved. It was not just the woman and the uh, hospital abortion committee or the doctors or anything like that. It was that underlying all of this was the state's effort to protect fetal life. If this one didn't pass constitutional muster, we say, uh, probably none of the existing laws would because this one was more liberal towards uh, towards abortion than many were. It was not a complete ban on abortion, for sure. Mrs. Beasley. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Underlying this suit is an appeal by pregnant women to the federal judiciary, and particularly this court, for an enunciation that they have a right, secured by our Constitution, to procure the destruction of their living Unborn children. Standing before nine men, um, nine white men, I should say, um, was quite a challenge. I had to do the argument by myself. The state is parents patriot here, exerting the sovereign power of guardianship over persons under disability, standing, as it were, in loco parentis or in place of the parent. Here, the mother in defending the unborn child. We were surprised, we certainly were surprised, because the decision that was written determined that, yes, there would be a right to abortion uh, without question up to a certain point. Many, 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 many people, hundreds of thousands of people were interested in the outcome and particularly since it was Georgia that was uh, the law passed by our legislature that was declared unconstitutional. 
New York State, among others, already have liberalized abortions. Now the rest of the country must follow suit. The White House offered no comment, but President Nixon has always strongly opposed liberalized abortion. Other opponents are now talking of a constitutional amendment to reverse today's ruling. This issue of abortion, like some other issues, will never be, in my opinion, finally decided because there are so many aspects to it and so many interests in it. And it, it's a religious, moral, economic, social, medical. There are just so many facets to it. But uh, deep down, of course, when the rubber hits the road is how far can a woman go from seeking what for her is a medical procedure. That was Dorothy Beasley, now a senior judge in Atlanta. She represented the state in a companion case to Roe v. Wade called Doe v. Bolton. Both were decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973. That story was produced by GPB's Sean Powers, and we will continue to follow the Life Act set to take effect in January. In the era of fake news and alternative facts, the focus on language in politics is high. What a bill is or a campaign is called can be just as, if not more important, than the actual contents. With the recent string of, quote, heartbeat and related bills in several states, we're taking a look at the role language plays in how we debate issues in public. Dr. Fern Johnson is professor emerita in English at Clark University. Her research centers on the discourse surrounding ethnicity, race, and gender. Gender. Dr. Johnson, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for calling me. Well, rhetoric, of course, is all about persuasion and appealing to emotions is clearly a big part of that. How does word choice play into that emotional tug? Word choice is the most powerful uh, part of persuasion. Uh, we learned that, you know, centuries ago from Aristotle. And essentially, when politicians or advertisers are crafting their messages, they carefully choose words that have powerful emotional connotations, the, the kind of connotations that can be quickly associated with ideas that, that already exist. Um, so, for example, Barack Obama's use of hope in his presidential campaign. Um, or if we look to abortion, the contrasts, for example, of the pro-life and pro-choice, so making life and choice and all of their connotations very key in the debate. So it's like a shorthand that really does gather together a lot of uh, connotations and, and meanings that already exist. Well, okay, so you mentioned the Obama Hope Campaign. There's also the Patriot Act, Make America Great Again, the Dream Act. They're all attention-grabbing slogans or ideas but what makes phrases like them work? Is it that they are aspirational? There's something to reach for here? What makes them work is they have a history. Sometimes the history gets twisted, but if you look in a dictionary, you can find all of these words. So you'll get a definition. You'll get many definitions. Some of them are denotative. Some of them tell you how a word would be used. For example, heart, which is critical now in these laws, you know, the first definition is going to have something to do with an organ in the body. Uh, it'll also include definitions related to a suit and a deck of cards or how we feel about something. But there's no context for these. So when you actually attach a word 
to other meetings that already exist, the connotations explode. So you get something like heartbeat bands, and the connotations for heart now relate to issues uh, about the center of life, the need for protection, love, and so forth. So you've got a much larger set of ideas that in this case are already firmly lodged in a position about abortion. And now we have one word, heartbeat, (laughs) the root of which is heart, which can take on a vast association of meaning and do it very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it's certainly catchier than fetal pole cardiac activity. Absolutely. <laughs> which, which is technically what it is at that stage of pregnancy. And OBGYNs have been quick to point that out, that there's no cardio, there's no way of talking about any kind of cardiovascular system right. at that time. Right, right. No circulation system that the heart can be feeding at that point. Yeah, but so the word heart, however, are there phrases, are there things that come up over and over again? You mentioned life, certainly, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, that kind of dichotomy. But heart, what are some of the words that come back over and over again in these kind of campaigns? Love, love protection, um, the vitality of life, uh, you know, pulsating. I mean, we think this notion of a pulsing heart that, that you know, we use this in all kinds of other contexts about about love, about emotion, about um, affect, feelings for other people. It, it personifies what is essentially a, a mechanical, um, anatomical organ. So, you know, we, we've now moved it out of that denotative stage and into a very meaning-rich connotative stage. Can you can you clarify again what denotative means? Denotative would be, you know, our our di- our dictionary um, flat meaning. So, you know, I have a desk and you know, a desk is a flat surface and you can go on and and, and define what it is. But it might for a writer connotate have another meaning connotate the place where they work, a place of love, a place of frustration. You might dread it. (laughs) You know, you can have a lot of different feelings about it. And just mentioning the word desk is likely then to call up all of those ideas in your mind. Not so much that, you know, it's a flat surface that I spread out my work on. Mm-hmm. So what are some a, other examples of very well-formulated rhetoric, ideas of things that really stick with us? Well, there, it, there are certainly um, successful, you know, advertising campaigns. Is that the, the sort of idea, you know, that, that you're thinking of, that, you know, the repetition? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I, I'm thinking of also political bills. You know, how many of them had something like HOME in them, you know, as an acronym or SOS, yes. you know, save yeah. our schools, save our soldiers, save our, you know, that save kind of thing. Save our soldiers. Um, I do a lot of research on uh, language policy and when there was a, uh, you know, a move to get rid of bilingual education all in various states. All these bills were some version of English for the children. Now, I mean, who can be against that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that sounds that sounds very positive, but it was a it was a shorthand for saying get rid of 
any other language taught in schools. And it, it you know, it, it was easy to say, had a positive connotation, positive spin to it. Yeah, well, we have the Georgia Heartbeat Bill, or HB 481, signed into law as the LIFE Act, which stands for Living Infants Fairness and Equality. So S, uh, the the, the uh, idea of an acronym really takes hold. But I'm also thinking about, you know, what you're saying about life, the, the what we're hearing now, Heartbeat Bill for anti-abortion rights, forced pregnancy for pro-abortion rights. These feel a lot more visceral than pro-life and pro-choice language that was used in the past. Is it is that what's happening? Our language is getting amped up to be, I don't know, a little bit more, even more feeling? Ab- absolutely, because I think, you know, all, all of the emotions and the polarization in political culture are, are so extreme and the the strategy related to the heartbeat bills is is so clearly laid out, even explicitly mentioned as you know trying to get one of them to get to the courts. There needs to be a fresh new language. You know, we have many uh, people who weren't born. Um, you know, when Roe versus Wade was decided, um, you know, there are different ideas about feminism. There are different ideas about um, you know, liberalism and progressivism, you, you need to, to freshen the vocabulary and, and make it as current as possible. So, you know, those who are defending the right of choice are now responding to a new term that is in the media sphere because it's in the legal cases. That's what makes the news. The status quo doesn't make the news the legal cases now that make the news. So there needs to be, you know, a way of responding to that. Um, obviously, safe and legal abortion still still is a very powerful response. But this notion of forced pregnancy is rich because it, it really engages very negative ideas about, you know, incest, about, you know, forced reproduction and slavery. Uh, you know, very, very negative things that now can function in a similar way, but with fresh language. Whether that will catch on is yet to be seen. I mm-hmm. think maybe Stacey Abrams was the first person who used the term. I'm not sure about that. But, you know, it it will it will get coverage, and whether it then catches on and becomes, a, you know, a more sloganized term, um, I think is yet to be seen. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, Dr. Johnson, the idea of it's really hard to change the debate once something takes hold. So, uh, but, uh, but, but I do think of things like the Affordable Care Act. That became Obamacare, right? Which was then, it was taken away from the Obama campaign and then sort of owned by them. So Absolutely. So where is the, who has the success in that case? Those who took it away or those who took it back? Uh, it depends on who's making the judgment about the success. Um, I mean, we can you can you can follow how it happens over a time sequence and say, okay, uh, calling it Obamacare, um, you know, ultimately and, and, and essentially embracing the term, uh, so so they won. But I think then you know at at some point on the other side, you could also say, well, that was the term we used, and then the you know Obama supporters tried to corrupt it. 
Um, but I think it really is in that sense, you know, in, in the mind of the person who hears the term, who uses the term, becomes a term of art. And a lot of people forget that there ever was a controversy about it. Um, I think, you know, it's the same, same thing with, with the term queer. Um, you know, the, the meanings have changed so much. So now it's just, you know, in the lexicon, it's in the news, it's in everybody's vocabulary, and it's not you know, necessarily for the usage of the term itself, um, a negative term. People might have negative attitudes about certain individuals, but the term is now very different because it was taken back by, you know, a group of people who said, that's our term, we're going to use it, we're going to be proud of it. We have just a minute left, but I'm thinking about uh, what you said earlier, that this is this power of persuasion in words has not really changed since Aristotle. Uh, but there's there's more than just emotion. There's logic. There's reason that you appeal to. Which tend to have the most success? Uh, it depends again on where your argument centers. You know, if you're an advertiser and you're putting together, you know, a, a, a quick advertising soundbite. Um, on balance, emotional appeals are probably the strongest. But it might actually be what what Aristotle called, you know, ethos or ethical appeals. It can be a person, you know, whose character stands for something. Dr. Johnson, um, I have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Fern Johnson, press, Professor Emerita at Clark University. Thanks so much for listening today.